Hi, it's Brendan here with a very exciting announcement. The legendary historian David Starkey will be joining me for a special live recording of this podcast on Tuesday, the 14th of December. David and I will be live on Zoom talking about the history wars, green hysteria, the tyranny of woke, and much more. Spike supporters can join us for free. If you're a Spike supporter, you can claim your ticket now from the supporters hub. If you're not yet a Spike supporter, then sign up today and you'll get free access to this event plus many more exciting perks. Tickets will go on general sale next week if there are any left, but Spike supporters always get first dibs and places are going fast. So become a Spike supporter now to get your ticket before they're all gone. You can sign up at spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Now on with the show. You basically went from a world of nature and manual labor to a world of machine labor and human mental labor. And that is a much better world. And, and if, if you don't have a bias against human beings, you really have to marvel at how great a world of machine labor and mental labor is compared to a world of manual labor. And it doesn't really matter. Like you would take twice as naturally dangerous a climate if you could have the machine labor and the mental labor. Like you would easily, like, would you take twice as many hurricanes if you have the ability to protect yourself against hurricanes? You'd probably take 10 times more. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Alex Epstein. Alex is an American author and energy theorist. He is founder of the Center for Industrial Progress and is a former fellow of the Ayn Rand Center. He's one of the best known and most articulate defenders of using fossil fuels. He's author of the books Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet and The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. He runs the Substack Energy Talking Points, which can be found at alexepstein.substack.com. So Alex, I want to start off by asking you about COP26. So we've just come out of COP26, yet another United Nations climate change discussion, debate, conference. And it's fair to say that you have a rather different take on COP26 than most people. So most people are either judging it either as a success because it had some uh, proposals or as a failure because it didn't go far enough. But you refer to it as a genocidal conference because of what it was trying to achieve in relation to fossil fuels. So could you, could you just spell out why you describe it in, in that way and how you see these kinds of conferences playing out? Sure. So th- by the way, thank you for observing that because that's that's definitely my view. And it's, as you said, there are these alternatives of e- even among critics calling it a flop, which is kind of a clever name. So I don't resent that, like calling it <laughs> flop 26 in a, in a certain sense. But I really see it as you know, this, this is an, a real evil going on. So, you know, what it's saying is we need to eliminate the use of fossil fuels in less than 30 years. And, and I think the key facts to, to get my basic evaluation are here. One is that low cost reliable energy is essential to human flourishing. So to our ability to be productive and prosperous on a naturally deficient and dangerous planet. So the earth is not a nice place to survive and flourish. We need to be productive and to be productive, we need machines and to use machines, we need low cost, reliable energy. So one is that's an essential of human flourishing without which the world is not a livable place for 2 billion, let alone 8 billion people. And then next 
is that there are still more than 3 billion people, really, you could think of it as 6 billion people who have completely inadequate amounts of energy. You could think of it as 3 billion people use, if you take just electricity, which we have good data for, less, you know, 3 billion people use less electricity than a typical American refrigerator. And then another 3 billion people on top of that use one third or less electricity than the average American. So you've really got less than 2 billion people who use what you and I would consider a reasonable amount of electricity and more broadly energy. So energy is this crucial need. And we live in an energy poor world where desperately more is needed. And, you know, and the third fact is fossil fuels provide 80% of our energy after generations of competition from alternatives. So it's not as if oh, solar and wind just came out yesterday. They're growing really quickly. I mean, they're growing mostly due to subsidies and mandates, but fossil fuels provide 80% of this desperately needed life support that billions of people have. And so at the very minimum, if you're talking about reducing, let alone eliminating, there should be catastrophic or apocalyptic fears about the loss of this value, both to those who have it and then the the loss of the opportunity for those who desperately need it. And yet you see none of that. And to me, that should be a big warning sign, even if you are very concerned about rising CO2 levels coming from fossil fuel CO2 emissions. It's, it's, it's very odd. And I think what explains it at the root is that the moral philosophy, and I think of it as a more of a primitive religion guiding this, is one whose ultimate goal is eliminating human impact on Earth. And I think that's why there's such an obsession about CO2. I think if you look at CO2, it does have a warming mm-hmm. impact. But the apocalyptic thing of the idea it's ending the world, that's not justifiable from a human flourishing perspective, nor is ignoring the need for energy. It's only justifiable if your ideal is an unimpacted planet. I think that is really the core idea of the modern green movement. And it's it has unfortunately overtaken the world. And I think the other idea, which you do a really good job of countering in your writing, is what I call the delicate nurturer assumption. So the view that nature unimpacted is stable, sufficient, and safe. And that's just totally false. Nature is not a delicate nurturer. It's wild potential. It's dynamic, deficient, and dangerous. And these two ideas go together. So if you think the ideal is an unimpacted planet, and that's actually going to be good for humans since it's a delicate nurturer, then you just have this tunnel vision of you just morally oppose and fear impacting the planet, including the climate. That's all you care about. Whereas from a human flourishing perspective, you recognize, oh, it's a delicate nurture, then you become really obsessed with energy. And so I think it's those two different philosophical perspectives that explain my divergence and and the really insane direction uh, of the world right now with regard to not caring about energy at all. So I want to dig down into both of those philosophical outlooks, the the bad one and the good one, uh, with you over the next um, 45 minutes or so. But just to stick with the fossil fuel question specifically to begin with. So one of the things I've always admired about your writing is that you are unapologetic in making the case for fossil fuels. So you have written the moral case for fossil fuels. And there are lots of people out there who criticize the more extreme elements of the green movement and their apocalyptic agenda and argue that they are exaggerating things. They've adopted an almost end of days religious mindset. 
But I think the very positive thing about what you've been writing is that it makes a positive justification for the use of fossil fuels in order to create the energy people need. But as you well know, we live in an era in which there is almost this universal fear and loathing for fossil fuels. And it, people now even use terms like fossil fascism to describe the use of these natural resources to create energy. So could you just give us your view on how this rather dramatic and severe turn against fossil fuels came about and what it is about fossil fuels that really gets people riled up in the way that it does? Well, so I think you raised two really interesting issues. So I want to address both and remind me if I forget the second one, because I think this issue of the, you could call it a defensive or reactive posture of a lot of people to the anti-fossil fuel movement is really interesting. And it's one thing that I, I've noticed about your work over the years is that you take a similar approach where it's like you think of the world as good and getting better and fossil fuels as fundamental to that. And I think there, there's a rhetorical lesson and, and, a, and a, just a factual lesson here. The rhetorical lesson, I, I can't show visually, but there, I have this, this idea I call arguing to zero versus arguing to 100. So if you can think of, think of it just a straight X axis, like a line, and think of there's a negative 100 at one end, there's a zero in the middle, and then there's a 100. And this represents in any conversation, what is considered the good, like the ideal, and then what's considered the evil. And what you find is that really effective movements, what they do is they argue themselves to that what they're doing, their policies are advancing 100, and the opposite policies are advancing negative 100. And so I'll just give you an example. This is a controversial person, but it's a good example of like Donald Trump in the US in 2016. Before he was elected, the debate was framed in terms of negative 100 was inequality and 100 was equality. And that was the dominant frame. And what he did is he reframed it. And for him, 100 was American greatness. So he had that famous mm. slogan, make America great again. And then negative 100 was American decline. Incidentally, I don't agree with either of these. Mm. I mean, I think it should be freedom versus lack of freedom. But in any case, it was very effective. And you notice that all of his policies, he said, this is going to bring us toward American greatness. And all of my opponent's policies are bringing us toward American decline. And so the lesson here is that the person who frames the conversation tends to win the conversation. And you always want to be aware, if you think a bad movement is dominating, you want to be aware of how things are framed. And usually your major battle is going to be at how they are framed. And so if you look at what is the way that the energy conversation today is framed, on one, on one level, it's 100 is eliminating CO2 emissions. If you look at net zero, 100% renewable, these are all just ways of saying like eliminate CO2 emissions is the 100. And then the negative 100 is use more fossil fuels. Now, if what happens is people who tend to support fossil fuels or oppose these policies, instead of challenging the framework and saying, hey, our goal is not to eliminate CO2 emissions, it's to advance human flourishing around the world. And that includes looking at both the benefits and the negative side effects of fossil fuels. Instead, what they do is they react to it. So they concede the framing of negative 100 to 100, and then they do what I call arguing to zero. So for example, Democrats say, oh, let's have a Green New Deal. And then Republicans say, oh, no, that's not practical. You know, look at what happened with Solyndra. This is going to cost us too much money. We're going through this kind of debate right now. But they're just trying, the other side is saying, hey, Green New Deal is going to bring us toward the ideal. And then sometimes the Republicans will just say, no, that's not, it's impractical. So instead of arguing that the policy is wrong, 
you argue that it's impractical for some reason. And it, it works in the opposite direction. So if they say, oh, fracking is bad because it causes earthquakes and cancer clusters and it's contributing to global warming, they'll just say, oh, well, okay, no, it's not true about the earthquakes and it's not true about the cancer clusters, but your best case scenario is zero. So you're either like trying to argue them down to zero when they argue to 100, and you try to argue yourself up to zero when they argue you to negative 100. But they always, you can see what happens with the momentum, right? They're always moving toward their 100. And I think as a philosopher and having this kind of perspective as a humanist, you know, one thing I noticed fairly early on is the framing of this is off. And as I indicated, my goal is not to eliminate CO2 emissions at all costs. My goal is advancing, if you're talking about the globe, advancing human flourishing around the world. And for me, the evil is, you know, regression away from human flourishing, mass human suffering and death. And because I have that perspective, and because if you look at benefits and side effects of fossil fuels from that perspective, they're good. What happens is I have a different posture because I think I'm making the world a better place because I'm really clear about my goal. And my, I'm 100% confident that my policy is going to advance what's good and their policy is going to harm it. But if I agreed with their goal of eliminating CO2 at all costs, I could never have that confidence because I would just be mm-hmm. slowing down. I'd be like the curmudgeon who's just finding fault in things versus mm-hmm. the alternative who has an ideal of my own. So I'll just pause there. But that's, that's my take on that aspect of the issue. Just um, on some of the specifics. So you mentioned there, and I think this is a really important point, that too many people respond defensively or reactively to these kinds of discussions. And you never really get anywhere when you do that. And particularly, uh, you can see that around the questions of how much this stuff will cost. Uh, But I want to ask you, I, I actually want to ask you about how much it will cost, if you don't mind, but in the broader sense of the impact that it would have on human life. So if we look at something like, for example, net zero, net zero is this idea that almost everyone, every member of decent society must bow down to the, to the ideology of net zero. And it's seen as the only question on the table is what year should it be achieved by? 2030, 2050, 2070? Those are the only options. And, and you can see how the debate is so violently shrunk to that one question of when to do it rather than whether to do it. But leaving aside the question of how much it would cost financially or whether it would wreck the economy or whether it's practicable to do these things, given that you've already said that 80% of the world's energy comes from the use of fossil fuels, and there are so many people out there who still don't have access to the kind of energy that people like us take for granted. What would be the cost to humanity of pursuing this goal, which so many government leaders are doing at the moment, of getting to a net zero situation and getting to this obsession with reducing fossil fuel use as much as possible? Yeah, you gave the ingredients why I don't like talking about the cost of net zero. I mean, it's like, that's why, what's the cost of keeping 3 billion people in poverty for 6 billion people in poverty for 50 extra years? Like you, you can't measure financial costs in that way. And I think that's, that's a big danger that we have this pseudoscientific quasi economic approach of saying, Oh, let's put a cost on net zero. And so what I prefer to stress is that, hey, the world desperately needs more energy. Uh, we need more fossil fuel. And they're talking about like literally destroying the world. In the same way, you don't see, I mean, you do see some of these economic estimates of climate change, but actually whenever they try to do it with any com- not completely dishonest 
academic, they don't get the figures they want. So they, you know, they'll talk in terms of like, oh, we're destroying the world, we're making the planet unlivable. And that's how I actually talk about it. I have a book coming out next year, Fossil Future. And I really do talk about like, this would make the planet unlivable for the vast majority of people. The key is getting how positively necessary fossil fuels are. And then you view the negative, not as like, oh, 50 trillion, because none of those numbers mean anything, particularly with inflationary practices the way that they are. But you get like, oh, this is actually going to kill and ruin the lives of, you know, it's going to end and ruin the lives of billions of people. Like it's, it's on that level. And the other thing to get is this is not a goal that came out of a human flourishing perspective. So it's not that people thought, oh, what are the policies? Oh, net zero. This actually came out of the most extreme elements of the environmental movement, the ones who are most deeply against human impact on nature as just a moral issue. And you take like Bill McKibben, whom I kind of debated, I guess, nine years ago now, and he, you know, one reason I wanted to debate him and I paid him a lot of money to debate me at the time when I had very little money was he is, you know, he's the leader of this fossil free movement and this divestment movement, the, you know, what's now comes under ESG. But if you look back 10 years ago, it was his organization that was talking about like fossil free, 100%. These were very crackpot views. And now they've become mainstream. And it's not because we've had 10 years of unmitigated achievement of net zero. Nobody has achieved net zero. There's nobody in the world who achieves net zero in a scalable way and that is doing things that other people could do without ruining their lives or even they could do possible. Like you can't plant enough trees and all this kind of nonsense that people get offsets for. So it's it's a totally out of bounds, like it's a crazy goal. And that's a weird thing to say because this is a weird perspective to have, right? Because everyone is saying something. And so how do you respond? And what I find is if I think it's crazy, I say it's crazy and I give the perspective that makes sense. And it's quite effective. Like it's quite effective to just say, hey, here's the way to actually think about it. And this policy we're considering is insane versus, oh, it's totally reasonable net zero and oh, maybe 20. Like it's it's not even in the bounds of, of a rational discussion. The most you could say as a goal is we want to innovate forms of energy that could scale net zero. Like that I would take as a legitimate kind of goal. But if you're talking about we are going to set a date at which we're going to eliminate fossil fuels, regardless of the state of the alternatives, and, and particularly we're going to oppose nuclear, we're going to oppose hydro. I mean, that, that is just totally out of bounds. That's, that's off the reservation from a human pers- human flourishing perspective. Spike is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all Spike's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spike team. So to never miss a thing, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. So, of course, one of the things that underpins this incredibly negative philosophical outlook of you know the the terrible problem the allegedly terrible problem of the human impact on the planet the, the human footprint as it as it's uh, as it used to be mm-hmm. referred to as if as if it was a bad thing that humanity had uh, stamped its mark on on this planet right. the ideology or, or one of the claims of course that underpins this is the notion that we are living through an extraordinary climate emergency and what's happened over the past few years is that the language has changed a great deal i mean 
not only in the sense that we went from global warming, which people obsessed over for a long time, to climate change, but now we're going from climate change to climate crisis, climate emergency. You have newspapers like The Guardian, whose house style is now to say climate emergency. Mm -hmm. they, they, they don't say climate change at all. So there's this constant drumming up of these awful apocalyptic scenarios and this notion that we live in a unique emergency which could end life on Earth. I mean, this is literally how people talk. And one of the things that I think you say about this, which is very interesting, is the role that the IPCC plays in stoking up this notion that the world is coming to an end or things are terrible and how it kind of contributes to that culture. Because a point lots of people I've heard make is that you know, the IPCC is relatively reasonable. It's got all this science. And the problem is the journalists. The problem is the environmentalist activists who kind of take it out of context and, and weaponize it and use it to push a message that is not reasonable. But you have a more subtle take on the interplay of all these different groups and activists and organizations. So could you just speak a little bit about how, where you think this notion of climate emergency is coming from and why it's so problematic? I mean, it's just a fact that human beings are far safer from climate than they've ever been. And so when people, you know, I, I've talked about this, Lomborg talks about this a lot, Schellenberger talks about this, like, you know, climate-related disaster deaths are down 98, 99% over the last century. So that's from storms, floods, extreme temperatures, et cetera. So that's a fact. And if somebody is talking about the future of climate danger and they don't recognize the present, they're either ignorant or a fraud. So that's one thing that you never hear that. And, and then the other thing is just if you look at the history of this planet, like we've had 10 times more CO2 in the atmosphere. We've had much warmer temperatures. They don't always correlate, by the way. But there's nothing that we could conceivably do that would make the planet an unlivable place for the most adaptable species in history. The most you could do, and there are reasons to want a warmer planet um, and certainly a greener planet, which more CO2 would give you. So the only reasonable arguments are that it is a a – disruptive rate of change. That is, we're changing from a, because you're really changing just to a more tropical planet because you tend to warm more, uh, at least at the North Pole. So are we changing more quickly toward a more tropical planet than we would like? That's And so that's a reasonable question, but that's not end of the world. It's going to become unlivable. It's all going to be a desert. It's all going to be dry. Like, oh, really? A warm tropical place is not a desert, right? Yeah. A warm planet is generally a wetter planet. So you have to just recognize that this whole idea of climate emergency, the world is going to end, we're going to go, like, this is all baseless. Uh, the most plausible thing is sea level rises. And if you look at those, they're pretty damn slow. And even if they were three times less slow, they'd still be slow. Uh, nothing compared to our ancestors 10,000 years ago who had to deal with really rapid sea level rise. So just get this out of the way that they're, from a human perspective, there's a climate emergency. It's only an emergency from the moral perspective. If you think it's evil for us to impact the planet, then it is an emergency, but it's a moral emergency because you think human impact is evil, not in the same way that anesthesia would be a moral emergency for such a person in the, in the past. And then the other thing is you have this delicate nurture view of the climate. Oh, it was perfect at 280 parts per million. And now at 420, it's going to become a devil and kill us. And before it was great. We never had droughts and nobody ever died. Right. It's, it's just total mysticism. So once you get that out of the way, there's a question of how is it that the whole I, – in fossil fuel, I use the term knowledge system. So the set of institutions that is supposed to give us expert knowledge, how is it that that whole set of institutions is giving us climate emergency? And so you take – you mentioned the UN and the IPCC. So the head of the UN, who is therefore the head of the IPCC, and directly Guterres, 
I mean, this guy is, you know, he talks about code red for humanity and talks about things like extinction and he portrays the world as in a terrible state. And he's a really, uh, a crackpot. I mean, it's, it's remarkable that this, that even this guy is leading anything should show you something about the organization. Then there's all the whole conception of the UN. I think people should morally question. I mean, the whole idea is every nation is morally equal and has an equal voice and Soviet Russia is just as good as America, you know, back in the day. So it's a lot with the UN, but we should question how is it that this allegedly scientific organization, the IPCC is happily participating in a process that tells the public that we're in an emergency and we need to get rid of fossil fuels. And it can't be. So there is this criticism, as you mentioned, that I call them the disseminators. You can call them the journalists, but the people who are supposed to tell us sort of what's the state of expert knowledge in a field that they are just screwing up. So it's the New York Times and the Guardian, et cetera. And they are definitely screwing up. And there are many documented examples of them just wildly distorting what the IPCC says. But the IPCC, so I, I call them like a synthesizer organization. So they're supposed to take the state of research. So there's like research, synthesizer, disseminator, evaluator. Evaluators tell us like, what do we actually do about the expert knowledge? So the researchers kind of discover it. The synthesizers put it together. The disseminators give it to the public and the evaluators decide what to do with it. A person can be more than one. But the IPCC is in essence a synthesizer. That's their job. And I think one thing you can see that I've pointed out repeatedly is they do not mention at all, even in their long reports, let alone their summaries, that we are safer from ever than climate. So that's exactly like a polio organization not saying, hey, by the way, we have a polio vaccine. It's kind of a big deal. (laughs) And then you look at the language that they use, and they use a lot of this language about human impact is evil. Like the the, one of them, I don't have the exact quote, but if you look at energytalkingpoints.com, just search IPCC, you can see um, there's something like, you know, the big story is humans impact on the planet. And they treat that as negative. And then they have in one of their major reports, they're talking about the state of the world, and they literally have one sentence devoted to the improving state of the world. And again, this is, you know, you've pointed out, I mean, the world we live in is so amazing, even compared to 40 years ago, particularly for the poor, you know, extreme poverty, less than $2 a day has gone from over four in 10 to less than one in 10 in 40 years. Like it's an amazing improvement. The IPCC doesn't acknowledge any of this. And so what, there are many other examples of this, but what you can see is this synthesizing organization is on what I call the anti-impact framework. So they have this belief that human impact on nature is evil. And then this dogma that it's inevitably self-destructive. And because they're on this, they totally ignore the amazing benefits of fossil fuels and the broader improving state of the world. So what happens is the IPCC has this warped anti-human way of synthesizing things. We could also talk about how researchers are affected, but even let's say the research was, was all good and not distorted, like the IPCC synthesis distorts it. And then all the disseminators distort it even further. So they'll take like the IPCC will say something somewhat measured. And then the IPCC summary for policymakers will say something more aggressive. And then the New York Times will say something even more (laughs) aggressive. But it's a series of distortions from this anti-human impact perspective. It's not the IPCC has a halo and then the New York Times has horns. Yes, absolutely. That's a very, very good description of the relationship between these different uh, organizations and groups. And you mentioned there the IPCC's failure to ever acknowledge or only to briefly, very briefly acknowledge the improvements in, in human living over the past few uh, decades and centuries. And uh, I want to ask you specifically about, I think, one of my favorite arguments that you make is this argument that 
you know, fossil fuels don't take a safe climate and make it dangerous. They take a dangerous climate and make it safe. And to me, that is, I mean, that's arguably the most counterintuitive thing someone could say in 2021, given the hostility to fossil fuels, the widespread nature of eco-apocalyptism and all those problems that we've been talking about. To say something like that, that fossil fuels have actually made the climate safer, more livable, a better place for human beings to be is is an incredibly counterintuitive thing. And it makes also makes perfect sense to right, me. It's but, like undeniable, right? Like once you yeah. hear it, so that's, it's one of my favorite, ex- I mean, I don't want to be immodest, but it's one of my favorite expressions I've come up with because it's totally like counter to everything you hear. And it's like completely undeniable. Let's think about it for a little bit. Absolutely. So, uh, so on that point, I wanted to, if you could just ex- outline to listeners how you think that process has come about. So what is it about? I mean, to me, it's so obvious. And when I heard Boris Johnson and Greta Thunberg, um, indicting the industrial revolution uh, in their talks around COP26, I just wanted to shake them both by the scruff of the neck because it seems so obvious to me that from that period onwards in particular, we have made the world a safer, better place over time and a place in which human flourishing can improve. So could you just outline what you mean by that by that line? When you say that fossil fuels take a dangerous climate and make it safe, how do you think that process has worked itself out? Sure. So you know, I call these two alternatives, the human flourishing framework and the anti-impact framework, or the anti-human impact framework is a little longer way to say it. So human flourishing framework is the goal is to advance human flourishing. And we recognize the planet is wild potential. So it's dynamic, deficient, and dangerous. And so the anti-impact framework is to say that the goal is to eliminate human impact on nature. Human impact is intrinsically immoral. And then the delicate nurture assumption. So the view that nature is stable, sufficient, and safe. Like it makes no sense that it's a delicate nurture. And so this applies to the whole earth, but it certainly applies to climate. Like climate was, so it's dynamic, it's changing all the time. It's deficient in terms of even like we need warmth from the earth and we need uh, rainfall, but we don't get that in a consistent way. Sometimes it's way too much. And that relates to dangerous. I mean, you know, you can have storms that would wipe people out. So you have to just start, the starting point is, and the undeniable thing about that phrase of mine is that the climate is naturally dangerous. And we mm. really have to take that seriously. And, and, and um, I have a bit about this in Moral Case, much more in Fossil Future. I have a whole chapter on what I call climate mastery. And I go through every type of climate danger. And one of the things I show is just what this was like when we aren't empowered. That is when human beings are at a low state of productive ability, where we have to cope with nature ourselves. And it is scary, the stories you hear about like, oh, in China, you know, flood can kill 30 million people and you just have these devastating droughts and famines year after year after year. So the first point is that, you know, climate like the rest of nature is dynamic, deficient and dangerous. And then the key is like the rest of nature, our its livability is related to our productive ability. So how much can we produce the values that we need to, to, you know, produce new resources and counter nature's threats. And so in the context of climate, you know, you can take any climate danger, but let's take drought, which is historically the biggest climate related killer because it kills your food supply. As you look at drought related deaths down over 99% over the last century, why is that? Well, it's because we can produce all these protections against drought. So for example, we can produce irrigation. How do we do that? We use machines. You know, machines amplify and expand human productive ability. That's what they do very dramatically. So we have these irrigation machines that can take water from where it is 
to where you need it. And then we also have these amazing drought relief convoys that can take, you know, if there's a drought in a place in Africa, you can take a place with a plentiful harvest and you can ship it over and you can save millions and millions of lives that way. We also have increasing desalination technology. So we can actually start to take the ocean, which is an unlimited source of water, and we can, you know, make drought effectively a thing of the past. So even drought today, the definition of drought today is totally different than what it meant. I, I live in Southern California in Laguna Beach, and periodically we have these drought warnings like, oh, we're in this dangerous drought. It's like, it doesn't really affect, I mean, some people are taking shorter showers because they don't understand the very small amounts of water involved in that. But like, we do not experience a real drought, even like they did in the 1930s. Mm. And it's, and it's, but it's because we have this incredible productive ability where we figured out how to get these machines to do all of this drought protecting work for us. And the same applies with extreme heat, extreme cold. With all of these things, just ask yourself, how are machines keeping me unnaturally safe from climate? And then you get to see, oh, wow, we, we, we really have a totally different planet now because it's, it's a planet with all of these amazing machines doing, I call them machine laborers sometimes, like doing all this work on our behalf. And the other great thing about those machine laborers, which depend on low cost, reliable energy, is it's not just a planet of machine laborers, but the machine laborers free up so much time for humans that we also have mental laborers, you know, human beings with minds who can figure out new things. And so it's this, like, you basically went from a world of, of nature and manual labor to a world of machine labor and human mental labor. And that is a much better world. And, and if, if you don't have a bias against human beings, you really have to marvel at how great a world of machine labor and mental labor is compared to a world of manual labor. And it doesn't really matter. Like you would take, you would take twice as naturally dangerous a climate if you could have the machine labor and the mental labor. Like you would easily, like, would you take twice as many hurricanes if you have the ability to protect yourself against hurricanes? You'd probably take 10 times more. And, and this goes to show that the things the IPCC is talking about is not even on that order of magnitude. They're talking about, oh, maybe it's 20% more intense or 10%. What they're actually talking about is so trivial compared to the magnitude of what the mastery abilities we have are and what losing them would mean for our safety from climate. Absolutely. And even there where you're talking about the machines that we've created and the, uh, what, how they have contributed to the freeing up of time and to the, um, improvement of the climate and to the shrinking of the problem of poverty. As you will know, one of the problems with the contemporary era is, is that even a word like machine is seen as a problematic term. And every news report on climate change is illustrated with a picture of a factory or an oil rig or some other horrible, disgusting contraption that humankind has invented mm-hmm. uh, with no consideration for the extraordinary impact these, this machinery and these inventions have had in terms of improving life and improving the planet and making the climate safer. So I want to ask you a few questions about what you very aptly refer to as the anti-impact side in this Mm -hmm. discussion, which is the dominant side, sadly. And the argument that you make, which I think is very convincing, is that the anti-impact side, it may present itself as a science-led movement, as a concerned movement, as a movement that loves nature, likes the environment, wants clean air, as we all do. But fundamentally, isn't this anti-impact side a manifestation of an anti-humanism and a, a manifestation of a loss of faith in humankind and a belief that any human interference, as you say, with nature 
is in itself problematic. So it's really a call to push humanity back, to rein in human aspirations and human ambitions and human progress in order to uh, create some fantasy land in which we live in communion with nature like we did in the past. So to what extent do you think the anti-impact movement is, a, is an anti-human movement, a, a movement of misanthropy? And how do you think we can kind of draw that out and convince people that that is the case? Yeah, I mean, at its core it is. And, and I think this this might make it harder, but I think it's accepted by almost everyone. I, like as in, I think the anti-impact framework it's weird because I think it's much more prevalent than people who might be inclined to my views think, but I also think it's much more changeable mm. than people who might be inclined. So I've tried to indicate just some of the reasons why you, know, you could think of it as the leaders in our culture, like the, the just, but I'll just highlight again, the total indifference toward the need for energy in general and fossil fuels in particular, when this is literally a life and death need for billions of people, just a total non-concern about that. And a total obsession about CO2. And maybe, you know, maybe the easiest way to point this out is, um, this is something I, I figured out fairly late in writing Fossil Future, but it's, it's now in the first chapter of it. Um, which is that, like, if you look at our attitude toward energy, again, you should have this incredible valuing of energy, want more energy. And you can see that throughout what I call our knowledge system that doesn't exist. But you can also see, like, we oppose fossil fuels and that the rationalization is, oh, well, we care so much about a safe climate. Right. But then also there's opposition to nuclear, which doesn't emit significant CO2. And then there's opposition to hydro. And even with solar and wind, there's mass like local opposition to solar and wind. And our thought leadership doesn't particularly care. So in the US, for example, it's very hard to get these things built. It's hard to build the transmission lines. Uh, There's a lot of opposition to the mining, which we currently delegate to China. But now we are expressing concerns about that many legitimate concerns, including slave labor. And what you find is there's also significant opposition to solar and wind, and yet the anti-fossil fuel movement doesn't care. So for a pro-human movement that loved energy, you would think, oh yeah, first of all, they'd be very worried about getting off fossil fuels in any case because energy is so important and it's so needed. And they would certainly be eagerly embracing nuclear and hydro, and they'd be really concerned if you know we're interfering with solar and wind and stuff. And there's none of that. So what you can see is what I've been saying is the goal of the anti-impact framework is eliminating human impact on nature. And that's really the animating goal, right? I mean, that is actually what's happening. We're, we're evaluating forms of energy, not by how much they benefit human flourishing, but by how little they impact nature. That's a fact. And, and you can, if you start looking at everything, you can see that this goal of eliminating human impact is actually animating things. And then I say, well, this is not just a bunch of misanthropes. I mean, it is misanthropes, but it's, we all have this. And I think if you look at, and I I noticed this in myself, even who had a pretty humanistic philosophical background, like I didn't myself even think much about the benefits of energy. I, for a long time, I didn't think about their benefits in terms of climate. So I was still on the delicate nurture assumption in a lot of ways. And I didn't think much about the billions of people who lack energy. So I even as good as my background was, I was sort of funneled into this way of just thinking about it. Oh, our goal is to eliminate our the impact of our energy. Mm-hmm. It's not to advance human flourishing. And I think w- there are a couple of reasons why this happens. And I think the one of the big ones is the use, this is a term, a- Ayn Rand had this great term for it called pack, the intellectual package deal, which is you take you take two different phenomena and you blend them together under one vague term. And I think with environmental stuff, like if you if you take the idea of 
protect the environment. You know, that's a, that's a thing everyone would say, I want to protect the environment. But do you want to protect like a good environment for human beings? Or do you want to protect the rest of nature from human beings? And when you talk about protect the environment, it blends those together. And so what happens is people think, oh, yeah, I, I just have clean air and clean water. That's what it means to protect the environment, right? That's for human beings. But in practice, they oppose, you know, factories, roads, and, and all of these things are justified uh, in terms of protecting the environment. So it really is a secret. It's a, it's a vague term that's disguising eliminate all human impact on nature. But it seems like it just means, oh, just eliminate the human harming impacts on nature. And so it's the same thing with save the planet. It's the same thing with being green. There are these, there are these packages of eliminating all human impact versus eliminating only the human harming human impact. And so what they've done is they own the idea of having a good environment for human beings and they package that with an unimpacted environment. So part of what I try to do in my work is, is untangle that package and bring a good environment under the human flourishing package. So for example, one of my little sayings is I don't want to save the planet from human beings. I want to improve the planet for human beings. And that captures it. But it's very important, and this is one of the ways of winning, is owning the idea of a good human environment, including clean air and clean water and the ability to enjoy nature. Like that belongs to the pro-industrial, pro-impact side. And so making the point that if, yeah, if you don't impact your environment, it's a bad environment. It's a dangerous climate. It's dirty air because you got to burn something. You got to be warm because it's cold world. So you're burning wood or animal dung instead of, you know, burning coal cleanly in a remote power plant, let alone burning gas or something like that. So it's recognizing that this anti-human, this anti-impact framework has been spread through the use of these package deals, these, these vague terms that equate basically a good environment with a good human environment, with an impacted environment, or eliminating eliminating all human impacts. And also this delicate nurture assumptions. That's the second thing that's done to make it palatable is spread far and wide the idea that our impact is inevitably self-destructive. Hmm. And so what ha- that happens is people can't even think in a pro-human way about anything that involves the rest of nature. And the secret is just giving them these different categories saying, oh, no, wait, goal is to advance human flourishing, including clean air and clean water. And I recognize the planet is wild potential. It's not a delicate nurture. And once you can frame things that way and give the alternatives, a lot more people will come on to the rational side because the the bad views are indefensible. Like nobody can really justify the goal of eliminating human impact. Nobody can justify the delicate nurture assumption. They only get entrenched if people react to them and don't reframe the conversation and replace them. And I think that's a lot of the reason I'm having success is because I just have these alternatives that make a lot more sense. And I, and I make, I really put in the sunlight how irrational eliminating human impact and how irrational delicate nurturer uh, are. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the spiked shop. You can now get your favorite spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag, or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU, and cancel, cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. I think your emphasis on, on reframing the whole thing is so important because 
I've, I've seen so many people, even people who have good ideas and good arguments and feel concerned about the excesses of the environmentalist movement, they kind of get trapped in the framework as it currently exists, which is, you know, perfectly understandable. It's a powerful framework. It's a global framework. It can be difficult for people to say, no, we want to take this framework away and put in a new one that emphasizes human flourishing. I want to ask you a couple of questions on human flourishing as we come to a close. But first, before that, Wait, I, I, have um, one que- mentioned- I have one question for you. Can I ask you a question yes. at some point? Yeah, I'm just curious if you could summarize your own evolution on this, because I, I, I you said I've influenced you so much. I'm curious about, but I, when I first started reading you, your your work was already quite like you were already thinking of a lot of the things in a similar way to me. And you all, like you already were unapologetic in a way that stood out. So I'm curious how your thinking like began and, and evolved. It seems like you started out, at least when I saw you from an unusually good place. Yeah. Well, f- well, thank you very much. Well, well, spiked, which is where I've been working for a very, very long time. Spiked has always been very much in favor of human progress and very much in favor of human flourishing. So we take the humanist standpoint, which means that we think every question confronting society should be rearranged around the question of will this benefit humankind? What is the right course of action for us to take for the greatest benefit to humanity? And and we try and weave that kind of human-focused approach into pretty much every issue that we write about, whether it's freedom of speech, which we think is incredibly conducive to uh, intellectual human flourishing, or education, which we think should be the highest standard imaginable in order to allow uh, young people to flourish, right through to questions of industry and progress and development, where we think that the question of of what human beings need, what is in their best interest, should really be the driving force behind all of those issues. So we come from a similar line to yours in terms of human flourishing. So we've always, at Spike, we've always had a very instinctive and and also politically outlined critique of environmentalism, because we recognised from the very beginning of of Spiked, that environmentalism was clearly a political manifestation of some very problematic anti-human trends, particularly anti-development, anti-progress. And I remember many, many years ago speaking at conferences in which you would be booed for saying that we should have huge amounts of development in the developing world. I spoke at a festival once, which was a real, one of the great eye openers for me. I spoke at a festival full of young, trendy, hippie people, caring people, green minded people. And I argued that, you know, Africa deserves to be as advanced as the United States. And I was actively booed by these people who would otherwise consider themselves to be very right on. So all of those experiences and all those political ideas we've been developing has has led Spike to the position we currently hold, which is one in which, which is a human-centered morality. I mm-hmm. guess that's the best way to put it. We, we favor a human-centered morality in relation to all areas of life, particularly the question of how we can liberate humankind from poverty, which seems to me to be one of the most important questions of our time and of previous times, and one that unfortunately lots of people today either disregard or cover up with all their discussions about the human impact on the planet. So we kind of have been have been coming at this from from that kind of angle for quite a long time. 
which is what drew us to your work and the work of other people who are raising these kinds of points. But I think in relation to the work that you've been doing, which is the question of how to reframe it, I think that's probably the most important question in, in, in relation to environmentalism. And on that issue, I wanted to ask you just a few more questions on that in particular. On the nuclear thing, uh, you mentioned nuclear there, and I think that's a very good example of what you were just talking about, which is uh, the anti-impact nature of this, because one could very easily make the case that nuclear is the road to go down if you want to stop using so many fossil fuels, if you want a cleaner, safer form of energy and so on. But even the use of nuclear is something that many Greens are opposed to. So could you just outline for us, before we finish on the human flourishing point, which I think is very important, could you just outline your case for why nuclear is safe? And the argument you've made before, which is that even the Fukushima accident demonstrates that this is a safe form of energy. So could you just outline the the the, the progressive argument for, for nuclear? Yeah, by the way, I like that you you use progressive as a positive versus I hate <laughs> I hate when I hate when the other side I mean I historically I don't align with the progressives in America because they are yeah. anti freedom. So it's it's viewed as I, I regard America as progressive like as in the founding fathers as the ultimate progressive. But I hate calling anti-freedom, anti-human impact people as progressive, particularly because progress is human beings impacting the earth in more and more intelligent and effective yeah. ways. Uh, so yeah, with nuclear, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, one thing, if you're just interested in, in what's safe is you can actually look at death statistics and nuclear radiation has essentially in the civilized world, zero deaths uh, from radiation. So like, you know, a couple people died in the Fukushima plant from but it's like, you know, like falls and stuff like that, like somebody falling, mm-hmm. not that. And that was such a crazy situation because you had something like 20,000 people die from this natural disaster. And yet the nuclear plant, which was actually basically the safest place to be at that time, got all the blame because there's radiation that was released, but it didn't kill anyone. And so the, the basic issue is radiation can be harmful for sure. I mean, we can have bombs and it can be very effective at killing people. But it, it's all about the magnitude and the time scale that it occurs on. And basically, the way a nuclear power plant works is it is incredibly difficult for a deadly radiation release to occur. And the, the physical reason why nuclear is so much safer is it cannot explode in the same way that other kinds of power can explode. So, you know, coal plant, gas plant, LNG facility, pipeline, even you know, hydroelectric dam, these can all ex- explode in one way or another. And so a very sudden release of out of control energy can kill people. I mean, energy is, you know, it's power, potential power. And so if it gets an uncontrolled release, that's bad. Where with nuclear, the uncontrolled release, even in a bad situation, is like a, a, in a long-term event that you can react to. And so what's going on with nuclear then is it's objectively the safest form of energy. You can understand the physics of why, and then you can also just see the track record. And yet it has this virulent opposition that calls it dangerous. And so that is really, that's a sign that it's just one of these examples of dishonesty where you have a different goal. And I think with nuclear, it's the real opposition is again, the impact. And there are two senses of it. So one is just that if we have nuclear and it's actually really cost effective, we'll end up impacting the world more because energy, you use machines to impact the world in one way or another. And if you have really cheap energy, nuclear will be, and nuclear is is good at doing that, then more nuclear means more energy. And I think that's the core reason. And there's a good story and moral case for fossil fuels that I tell where when fusion, fusion gets falsely announced all the time, but one of the times it was announced 
people took it seriously. And a lot of the environmental leaders talked about it. And they said, oh, this would be terrible if it were a totally clean, cheap source of energy <laughs> because of what we would do with it. That was the mm-hmm. idea, right? One, one guy called it, it's like giving an idiot child a machine gun. So that's how they view humans, right? Us empowered by energy is like an idiot child with a machine gun, just destroying everything and not understanding uh, anything. The other thing with nuclear, though, is it's impacting nature in a new way. So man-made radiation, you can think of radioactivity, you can see it as, oh, yeah, this is something that is, uh, we're doing it. And it, it must be bad because we're doing it. Because you can point out, oh, radioactivity exists everywhere. You know, it exists more in Colorado than in other places. And we don't treat it as that big a deal. And you're a nuclear plant, it's not that bad. But it's really, oh, no, we created it. And it must be bad. And you see this with the waste. like Oh, the waste is so bad. But the waste is just it's just this material that we created, but it's not a particularly dangerous or difficult to deal with material, particularly because it's so compact, because nuclear tends to be so compact. So it, it's just one of these situations where there's this faux safety argument, but it's really just this impacts nature, and we think that's wrong. Absolutely. Okay, Alex, just a couple of final questions on the human flourishing issue and mm-hmm. how we can push this idea a bit more. And um the first thing I wanted to ask you is whether you think all the things we've just been talking about and the things that you've been writing about for a long time in relation to this obsession with limiting the human impact on the planet rather than the question of how to increase human flourishing and liberate the human potential. So things are the wrong way around from the very beginning. How much do you think this ties into a broader crisis of humanism? Because it seems to me very often these days that human beings are seen as a problem, not only in relation to nature and the so-called human footprint, but even in relation to each other, we're seen as toxic. We're currently seen pretty much as vectors of disease who need to be controlled in case we spread viruses. We're seen as, you know, men are seen as problematic and other people are seen as victim groups. I mean, there's a whole, it seems to me there's a, there's almost a tidal wave of political campaigns and things, as you said, that get lumped wrongly under the title of progressive, which really winds me up as well. But there seems to be so many different points of view, campaign groups, arguments, ideologies these days, which all of which create an image of humankind as being somehow problematic, toxic, polluting, dangerous. How do you think that's come about? And what do you, what do you think to be a, is a good way to really counter these anti-human arguments and make the case that you know we're a pretty good species we're a pretty clever species and we have the potential for good within us i don't maybe think of it as a, a total attack on humanism exactly that's the part of it i understand the best but in a sense you can think of it as an attack on achievement or human achievement or human values, because in many of these situations, there are victim groups that, you know, are used to, to justify the attack. So you take something like the 99% and the 1%, right? That, that whole categorization and demonizing the, the 1%, even though everyone should know that at least some of the 1% have created enormous value. Like you take, take a Steve Jobs or a Jeff Bezos and think like if those guys had not been there, the world would be very different. And I would say, in a, in a worse way, a considerably worse way. But that's not really saying all human beings are bad, right? It's saying the human beings who have achieved something are bad. 
And I think, or who they've achieved something or they have some value. And I I did a post on Twitter on this woke religion because Michael Schellenberger had this interesting taxonomy of woke religion. And what I found is all these woke causes, at least in my interpretation, they have this anti-value, anti-achievement. So even with, you know, take some of the, the transgender stuff, the seeming justification is like certain people have been really mistreated and brutalized and singled out. And that's really disgusting to see. But then there's just this attack on kind of anyone who has a, quote, normal sexuality and just treating that as bad and you should feel guilty and you need to you need to totally change the way you think and talk to everyone. And like there's just this attack on the kind of more the the people who are like seemingly healthy and comfortable in their own situation. And there's there's just a desire to attack a lot of human institutions, even with the police. It's not so much like reform police, but it's just like, oh, let's attack and replace it with anarchy. So there's this hostility. I mean, there's a lot, really a nihilism, you could call it, like in terms of, so it's in a sense worse. It's even, it's it's a broader thing. And I can't say I know exactly how to combat that because it's, for better or worse, I've specialized in this environmental realm of, you know, of our relationship with the rest of nature. So in that realm, I feel like I can speak with confidence and I think it has broader positive implications. But I do really think having what I called arguing to 100. So having this positive vision of like a world that's better and better for human flourishing. And part of that is really appreciating the present, which has a certain attractiveness to it because people are just complaining all the time or not that appealing. So really being able to appreciate and love the present and really the aspect I mentioned, owning the issue of environment. So it's like, no, I'm the one who likes enjoying nature. You who want to put us back to, you know, digging for roots out of the dirt, you don't get to enjoy nature under that philosophy at at all. So really own, you know, having a 100 that owns all the key value issues, I'd say that's the, that's what we are entitled to uh, as humanists. And then really having them as negative 100 is, and these are regressives. They want to take us backward. They want to, you know, they, they, they think every human impact on earth is evil. I use the term human racism. So they're human racists. They think everything humans, the human race does is bad and everything the rest of nature does is good. And when you have that, I think if, if the more you internalize that, and I think you, Brendan, are one of the top in the world right now at that, the more you internalize that, the more you see it totally shifts the dynamics because you, you end up having the moral high ground in a way that the other side is used to, but it's even stronger because it's much more bulletproof. Like their claim to the moral high ground is so fragile because it's based on these false assumptions about how the world works. And it's based on these goals that are unachievable. Like if you actually try to eliminate human impact, you kill people and it's phony. So you, you can actually have a much more powerful version of what the other side has in the realm of like humanism versus anti-humanism in industrial and environmental issues and I assume there's a, I think there's a similar lesson for the other issues in terms of having 100s based on human achievement. And I'm eager to work with people in those, those fields. But like right now, I'm, I'm, I think the best thing I can do is try to reframe this one field, which is obviously a big field <laughs> and have that be a model. If I can succeed, have that be a model for the other fields to also have like a positive 100 in those fields as well. Okay, so what you've just said there, it brings me on to my final question. You you used the word positive there a few times, and what you said does sound to me very positive. But I wanted to finish by asking you 
about your levels of optimism and pessimism, because uh, I think humanists are generally, in my experience, quite optimistic people. We think human beings are pretty good and in the right conditions, they can achieve amazing, wondrous things, earth transforming things. But uh, alongside that, it's it sometimes feels like us against the world and i think particularly with you in terms of what you do and you i can see you now sitting in front of the cover of your book the moral case for fossil fuels it very often feels like alex against the world and i wanted to ask does that impact on your levels of optimism do you generally feel optimistic that at some point people will snap out of this particularly if we bring the case to them if we reframe the discussion are you optimistic about our ability to i guess firstly liberate ourselves from these depressing ideologies in order then to liberate ourselves from the burdens of poverty and and a lack of energy yeah it's i i think about this a lot and and it, there are these two forces that I see because one is, and I guess, I mean, one perspective is it's often viewed in this Marvel movies perspective of like, is the world going to end or not? (laughs) Right. And so I don't think the world is going to end. And I think that even if I weren't here and you weren't here, the world wouldn't end like, Oh, everyone. And I don't think they would do the worst of these policies, but you know, I'm also a humanist, but I'm also an individualist. So I really think in terms of, okay, there are billions of people whose lives depend on a better direction versus a worse direction. Like these, these increments of bad or good really matter. And from that perspective, there's a lot of bad in terms of just, you know, there are literally billions of people who will not progress already based on the policies, who will not progress and have the same opportunities that they would if there were better policies. And certainly with what we're talking about now could really lead to regression. We're already seeing it in Europe you know, in the U.S., I and mean, it could lead to serious regression if we do what I call unilateral disempowerment. And, you know, in the U.S., we're at the end of November right now. I mean, we're talking about this, what's called a reconciliation bill or build back better, which would be like, horrific for our country and our energy and, and would be an incredibly regressive force. And it is is scary. So there are these these factors. And then the, the scariest thing is actually the security stuff. So it's it's something like the rise of China. It's it's the rise of certain countries that are very committed to dominance, including having good energy in the context of our countries, like screwing around, including screwing <laughs> up our energy. Like that's really scary to see how focused China is and how much fossil fuel they're willing to use versus we're arguing about gender pronouns and trying <laughs> to deindustrialize. In effect, like that's that's the number one thing that scares the hell out of me personally. So that's the pessimism. But then the optimism is I do see a greater and greater uptake for my ideas and and humanist ideas. And I find that the better I, like I can keep getting better at articulating. So every year I feel like I get better and I reach more people and I still think I could probably get about five times better. So I, I think there's just a huge amount of opportunity to improve, including to bring on more people, but to also improve the state of the art. And then at the same time, that coincides well with the realities of the the falseness of the other side being revealed. So they keep saying, oh, we're going to all die from climate, and yet climate-related deaths continue to be low. And they keep saying, oh, green energy is amazing, and yet Europe is afraid of winter now, which just should be (laughs) such an embarrassment. And and so you're seeing, like, we're seeing the more that we spread a good framework and a good factual understanding of the world – the the more people will be able to see these incremental declines and they'll be able to understand them and reverse course now 
versus just the whole thing collapses because you don't want that. And even when the whole thing collapses, there's no guarantee people will do the right thing because the demagogues will always have some interpretation that's favorable to them. And I'll be like, oh, we didn't build enough solar somehow. We needed more storage. So, I, you know, in terms of motivation, I'm very motivated because I can see my perspective improving and I can see it changing more minds and I can see, uh, I can see it growing. And I can also see there's all these things in the culture that are, that people are going to have their eyes more open to. So just as one concrete, there's much more awareness of the fact that we're safer than ever from climate than there was when I published Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And, and particularly the guy who first publicized it, Inder Gokhlani, I think in, two, I don't know when he first publicized it, but I learned about it, I think in 2007. And like, that's a really important thing. You see it all over the Wall Street Journal now. Lomborg talks about it a lot. Schellenberger talks about it. That's just one example of how a humanistic way of thinking is leading to a greater humanistic understanding in the world. And so I think they can do a lot more. And if people want to sort of track what I'm doing, the best place to go is I have this website, energytalkingpoints.com. And if you sign up for the mailing list there, you'll see kind of, I'll send out a couple times a week, the latest talking points. And if, if you, if you've listened today, you'll kind of see, oh yeah, he's trying to frame this humanistically. He's trying to give really useful arguments and facts. And the goal there is just anyone who's at all favorably inclined toward this perspective that you have all the ammunition in the world. Like you don't have to do the work that I do. You just have to understand the basic framework and you can confirm my facts for yourself. But this will make you a very powerful uh, warrior for the truth. Alex, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.